I want to talk about the providence of God because, to be quite honest, as a pastor, I want to talk about providence a lot. Uh, given freebies, so to speak, I want to talk about providence because we live in a broken world with broken relationships and conflicts and suffering and pain and physical illness, and then you die. <laughs> and mixed in, there are some nice things along the way sometimes. Providence is a perspective that God provides. Hear that word providence in that? That God provides through all of that a perspective that He cares, that He's powerful, that He's involved in this world, and that He is sovereignly orchestrating. I'm going to quote Romans 8.28. It's a great providence verse. All things together for good for those who love God and those who have been called according to His purpose. Really, that's what providence is. And, and, and I want so badly to have this in my thinking so that I would suffer well when I suffer, that I would rejoice well when I rejoice, and so that you would suffer well, that you would rejoice well when you do, because as Jesus said, in this life you will have what? Trouble. You'll have trouble. And if we can have a perspective that sees God as sovereignly in charge and caring and powerful, who loves his own uniquely, it can steady our hand as we go through these hard times. And we can trust God like we wouldn't otherwise. We're going to do this this morning in the book of Esther. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to the book of Esther. The book of Esther is found, uh, it's before Job. So uh, Psalms are basically in the middle of the Bible and you back up to the left and you find the book of Job. And if you just back up a little further, you'll find the Old Testament book called Esther. It bears the name of a young woman named Esther. If you have one of those Bibles we gave you today, I just looked up the page number this morning. It's 353. <clears throat> so if you have one of those white and black English Standard Versions, it's 353, the providence of God in the book of Esther. And as you're turning there, uh, maybe a, just a few more comments about providence that might be helpful. By way of contrast, providence is the Christian version of what we hear today, and it's the word luck. Okay? Luck is the pagan, godless version, if you will, of providence. There was a day in the English-speaking world where the word providence was a pretty common word that you would hear. Uh, I would imagine there are many in this room that have never used the word providence. Everyone in this room has used the word luck. We're a product of our culture, okay? But there was a day, once upon a time, uh, when it was pretty common in America or in England or in India, English-speaking places where people would talk about providence. Christians especially, but not just Christians. Those influenced by Christian culture would use the word providence. Something really bad happens, and someone would say, hopefully thoughtfully, they would say, this is a hard providence. This is a difficult providence. Something really great happens, and they would say, this is a good providence. Instead of, oh, we've had good luck. Or, oh, we've had bad luck. No, there's an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God and the love of God, especially for His own, but in general as well, to see 
that somehow God is in this. And somehow we can have hope that we wouldn't otherwise have because God is causing all things to work together for good for those who love Him and those who have been called according to His purpose. And I would love to have you, and I would love to see it in my own life, have us recover providence. If not in our vocabulary, that's a great place to start, at least in our thinking and the way we look at the world. To say this is a good providence or this is a hard or a difficult providence, acknowledging God in it, God, God's sovereignty in it. Another point by way of contrast, not just from luck, but another one on the more positive, this might help you. It's different from a miracle. Okay, miracles happen, and we see many of them recorded in the Bible. And you kind of see an upsurge of miracles at certain times in biblical history around certain key events like the coming of Jesus, and there's all these extraordinary miracles that weren't happening all the time. Other certain times in the Old Testament, you see a certain concentration of the miraculous. God does work in miraculous ways. A miracle is something, though, that cannot be explained through circumstances, everything lining up just right. You just can't explain a miracle other than God is going to do something that can just simply can't be explained. He, he's going to almost like push pause and do something that is so extraordinary that it's not just because of circumstance. Okay? For example, if he raises the dead... That just doesn't happen, okay? It's not like getting over a cold or getting over some certain kind of disease even. No, a miracle is it cannot be explained. Providence could be explained, you know? This happened and then this happened and then this happened. And you could see maybe now in hindsight how this could all come together. In fact, even miracles happen in God's providence, <laughs> Okay, at certain times and certain seasons and certain people's lives. So just know that we're acknowledging God's work in both of them. He can do miraculous. But in one sense, in one sense, it's even more extraordinary that he works providentially. Because there's, he doesn't push pause. There are all of these factors and all of these things happening and all these different people and all of these different places. And how about Romans 8.28? Oh, I can't even get my mind around it causing all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who have been called according to His purpose. It's amazing. I want you to be amazed at God who works providentially. So when you get the phone call of the bad news or you get the phone call with the good news, you're seeing God in it. You're seeing God in it. And you can trust Him and know that He cares enough to somehow cause it be for your good and by the way your best good is conformity to the image of christ i'm preaching and we're not even in the text yet i love it i feel passionately about these things i want you to rejoice well if you're a christian seeing the hand of god i want you to suffer well as a christian seeing the hand of god maybe not seeing it exactly but knowing trusting him I see this as somewhat of an equipping seminar, helping us think about these things the right way. Well, 
Now we're in the book of Esther, which is a great test case. It's a great example of the providence of God. Let me help you understand the book of Esther. There's ten, there are 10 chapters. We're not going to read all 10 chapters, but you can read it on your own. And I think I'm going to be able to help you by giving you some, some key helpful things. And then we're going to survey Esther this morning. Five key characters in the book of Esther. Uh, and if you don't understand the five key characters, it will be more confusing than not. So let me tell you about them ahead of time. Um, the first, you have one king, two queens, and two other people. Okay, one king, his name is King Ahasuerus. You don't need to write that down. There's only one king involved, but King A. Okay, King Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus, however you'd like to say it. We'll read about him momentarily. There's also a queen and a second queen. The first queen is Queen, queen Vashti which you don't even need to really write down because she gets written out of the will pretty fast. Um, <laughs> she's the former queen, <laughs> Queen Vashti. There's a second queen who's very important in the book of Esther because it's none other than Queen Esther, okay? And she comes on the scene and she occupies central role. And then there's Esther's relative who is her legal guardian because Esther's parents have died and his name is Mordecai. Mordecai. He's Jewish. Esther's Jewish. That's important. And then fifthly, there's the arch enemy in this book, and his name is Haman. 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 And he's the bad guy of the book because his agenda, rather quickly, is to annihilate the Jewish people. Esther's a Jew. Her, let's just call him great-great-uncle. It's not exactly right, but... um, Mordecai, he's a Jew, and the bad guy in the story, in the drama, is Haman, and he wants to annihilate the Jews, okay? This whole book is not about Esther. I said she's the central figure. That's not actually true. God is the central figure, okay? This is the one book in the Bible that I know of off the top of my head on a really, really, really short list where the name God is not mentioned. So you say, how could this be a book about God when God's name is not mentioned? I thought it was a book about Esther. Quite honestly, it's a book about God like no other book because it never mentions his name, and yet you see his, if you will, fingerprints everywhere in the book. And so it's an extraordinary book about providence, and in God's perfect wisdom, he had it written so his name proper is not named, and yet you see his work all over the place. And remember, that's how providence works. That's how providence works. Before we start reading, I want to ask you this important question. We'll get to it at the end. You already know enough to know there's a bad guy named Haman who wants to exterminate the Jews. My question for you is, what if he succeeds? In one sense, this book is about that when you look at the bigger picture of the Bible. What happens if God, through His providence, doesn't preserve the Jewish people through the means of Mordecai, through the means of Esther, through the means of a king named Ahasuerus? Let me put it another way, a more rudimentary way. What if this book doesn't exist? Or what if it doesn't end well? What role does this play in the whole Bible? Be thinking about that because it's very, 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 very important. 
To give you a hint, today at the end of our service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper where we eat bread and we drink wine in obedience to Jesus who said, do this in remembrance of me. If Esther, the book of Esther, doesn't end well and Haman gets his way, there would be no communion. Just to give you a hint. Ready to go? Have you found Esther yet? Did you blow the dust off of your Old Testaments? We're going to be in Esther. Ten chapters. Again, uh, we're not going to look at every verse, but we're going to get a good sampling, and I think it's going to help you to appreciate the book better and read it perhaps uh, more effectively, but it really is all about providence. Uh, Let's go ahead and read the first nine verses to get started, but I won't even be able to get through the first one. So let's start. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Okay, I did make it through the first verse, but you just have to stop for a moment, and then I will keep reading. The Ahasuerus, who reigned from, what was that, India to Ethiopia? That's huge on the map. He's a power hitter. You could look up an ancient map and you say, that is a big, now it's Pakistan. But this is, this is a huge spot on the map. He's actually somebody, if you've never heard of King Ahasuerus, maybe you've heard of his Greek name, Xerxes the first, I think. He's a major player, not just in the Bible. In fact, he's not a very major player in the Bible. He is a major player in history, though. King Ahasuerus. If you were to go to the British Museum today, which would be impossible because it's already evening there. But anyway, if you were to... (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) If you were to go to the British Museum, which, by the way, is one of the coolest places I've ever been, if you can go and save up enough uh, pounds to go there, uh, uh, go to the British Museum. You don't need to go anywhere else. You can see the world by going to the British Museum. I'm serious. In fact, I'm so serious. There are people protesting outside probably right now, or they were earlier today, because they want their stuff back. <laughs> People from other countries. Because as they, as at certain times, as, as the, the, the Brits were ruling the world, they were taking all their stuff. And you can see the world in that museum. I mention it now because if you were to go there, you can see internal walls from King Ahasuerus's palace. I was standing there dumbfounded going, I'm in London, (laughs) and I'm seeing what Esther saw from the 400s. Cool stuff. Now I feel like I need to do a tour there or something. I'm not a tour guide, and I don't don't get a cut from people who go there. But all of that to say this, this guy's a historical figure, a very important historical figure, major power, okay? And I promise I won't keep stopping after every verse. Let's keep going now with that in mind. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. 
And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And you're meant to feel the weightiness of that and the grandeur of that and say, this guy put on quite a festive party. All of his closest friends, wink, wink, closest enemies too, no doubt. And here he is, he's flexing, he's showing his greatness, he's, he's showing them all of his riches and his grandeur. And it even talks about the decor, we'll skip that, we'll drop down to verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. In other words, there are no limits. Just keep drinking. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Just pausing ever so briefly, you see the grandeur of it all. And we want you to eat, drink, and be merry. And just be encouraged and affirmed that I'm the king and you want me to be king. Because look at the parties I throw. And not only that, Queen Vashti is having a little get-together for the gals. <laughs> okay? She's, she wants the wives on their... She, he wants his wife to get all the wives on the side too. And, and, and so she's doing her own thing. So we can, we can see and understand this. But then as we move through 10 and 11, we see that the king wants to show off his wife to all of his guy friends. Even in verse 11, uh, there, the, the, the servants are to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. And here we go. Dun, 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 dun. There's trouble, verse 12. But Queen Vashti, 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 excuse me, refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. It's going to be trouble. Okay? She's a little too comfortable in her beauty. She may be the most beautiful woman in the land and she may be married to the most powerful man around, but she is now going to get herself into trouble. We're not going to take the time to read it, but what we could read in the following verses in chapter 1 would be the king needing to do something regarding his disobedient wife. And the counsel is, if you let your disobedient wife get away with disobedience, then all the other guys are going to have trouble too. Now just for the record... I'm not vouching for this man's godliness. <laughs> okay, Esther's not about how great all these people are. Okay? Esther's about how great God is. So joking aside, it did give me the opportunity to say, this guy needs to show his power, and he's even willing to get rid of his wife to show that he's the most powerful man around. He wanted to show off his hot wife to make himself look better. She says, I don't think so. And then what happens? counsel is you need to get a new wife king it's quite a drama so the decree is made she's out according to verse 20 and then we see esther coming on the scene 
Now all the virgins, all the the young virgins, according to chapter 2, verse 3, are brought to the harem, as it is called. And they're going to be presented to the king, but only the best ones. Let's pick it up in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. That should be familiar to you if you've been reading the Bible very long. You know King Nebuchadnezzar. You know him from the book of Daniel. You know about the Babylonian exile when the Jewish people were taken away. Well, guess what? Here we have Mordecai, who's a Jew, and he was a part of all of that. Verse 7 is really important. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Okay? She's going to be one of the young women who ends up being a candidate to be the next wife, the replacement wife for Vashti. Drama, huh? Kind of juicy? In church of all places? Verse 9. You th- we'll be doing Song of Solomon next week. No, we won't be. Verse 9. And the young woman pleased him. So she's before a servant now, and, and she pleased him and won his favor. He's trying to do the weed out thing for the king, and, and he acknowledges she is a good candidate. Keep reading in verse 9. And he quickly provided her uh, with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. In other words, what? She'd not let anybody know she's a what? She's a Jew. Mordecai said, don't tell anybody. So she hasn't told anybody. And that becomes significant in the story. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court. This is verse 11 of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening. The drama goes on. Um, Let's pick it up in verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. We can pause there. In fact, we should pause there. Because now we're going to have subplots. Okay? I realize I'm not a great storyteller. In fact, the best story is just to read the whole thing. But we're going to read Hebrews next week, so I didn't want to do that to you this week. But just notice what's happening. We've got these Jews who, by the way, were exiled, and there they are. And here we have this girl who doesn't have any parents, rough life. And now all of a sudden, um, she's got a good uh, strike of luck. (laughs) According to God's providence, she's at the right place at the right time to do something great we're about to see. I'm still not going to the wall for her godliness, for anybody's godliness. She's a Jewish person, okay? We don't really know really the details beyond that, but she's a Jewish girl who's beautiful, and she has won the favor of the king. 
now subplot in verse 19, and it is, it is an important one, though. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Remember, Mordecai is her relative, her guardian. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as uh, when she was brought up by him. 21, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtha, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Okay, so there's an assassination plot here. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found out to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Becomes really important later, but for now you can see that it's important. Mordecai helps to save the king's life. That may come in handy someday, right? Someday you may need a favor. That day may never come, but if... Never mind. If you don't know what I'm quoting, I won't tell you what I'm quoting. If you do know what I'm quoting, somehow everything comes... Never mind. (laughs) You're thinking, what's wrong with the pastor? He's talking nonsense. Anyway, you're right. I am. They won't. They'll take it off the audio. With that in mind, we shift plots again, and we learn about this guy named... Haman, okay? Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite. Apparently, he was somehow involved in the investigation and getting to the bottom line. The son of uh, Hamadatha. Uh, We don't even need to keep reading this, but what we do need to see is as we see this guy, Haman, who's a big official, we see... Verse 2, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. We already, we already know why. We've read Daniel before. Let's keep reading. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? In other words, why don't you pay homage and bow down and do some kind of worship to Haman? And then they, and when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had not told them that he was a Jew. We knew that that's why he wasn't doing it. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy, this is really important, all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. He's so mad that he didn't get homage paid to him and respect to his name because he's such a great little man that he not only wants Mordecai killed, he wants all of his people killed. It's crucial that we would see this. Verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. 
If it pleases, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. And my mind is remembering when I read that about let it be decreed by the king. This king, when he decrees things, we learned in chapter 1, he executes. He doesn't make empty promises. Where there's a decree, it might even mean his best and most favoritest beautiful wife is done. And if there's going to be a decree like that, there's going to be no reversing such a decree. And we would sense that as we read through this book. It's interesting, in the end of verse 10, he's referred to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. In verse 13, in my margin, we're going to read this, in my margin I wrote, yikes. Okay, you should too if you're godly. It's what Christians do. Um, <laughs> 13, letters were sent by couriers. So this, the, the king agrees. So letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. And remember how big and powerful he is, according to chapter 1, verse 1, with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. Thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is in the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. This is as good as done. This is going to happen because that's how this king works. And so it's been decreed and it's going to be bad for the Jewish people. Again, my question is, what happens if this happens? And now we come to chapter 4. Mordecai is distraught. Esther is going to be distraught when she hears of it. A messenger is sent to Esther. Look at verse 8, about halfway through the verse. That he might show it to Esther. He, she, she, uh, the letter is being delivered and explain it to her and command her. This is her great, great uncle, let's call him. Command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Then 11 says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. This is what Esther would have to do. To be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king's, into the king these 30 days. Apart from a good stroke of luck, right? Esther's fearful. She's fearful for her life. It's interesting, Mordecai responds in verse 14. This becomes an important verse in this text. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. That's an interesting confidence somehow that Mordecai has in the providence of God. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom, and here's where most people think we find the theme of Esther, and I would have to agree, for such a time as this. At the end of 14. She is the right young, beautiful woman at the right place, at the right time, for such a time as this. 
so that perhaps the Jewish people will not be annihilated. And thankfully, she knows it might mean her life, but at the end of verse 16, she womans up. (laughs) We might say, if I perish, I perish. She's going to do the right thing. She's going to go to the king. And so she does. And he accepts. And I apologize for not reading the whole thing because that really carries the sense of the drama. But in verse 4, we do have her quoted as saying, If it please the king, let the king and Haman, this is his right wing, right hand man, and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Reading the whole thing, I'm not quite ready to tell you what my request is. But what what would delight me as the one in whom you found delight is if you would come to a feast that I have prepared and that you would come and you would bring Haman. And he's promising to give her whatever she wants, up to half of his kingdom. And so he's certainly, certainly going to bring Haman if that is what she's asking. Now, you got to love it in verse 9 of chapter 5. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. This guy's a total egomaniac. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons and all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther... Let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her. And who's Esther? I mean, Esther's, Esther, she, she, she's the most beautiful woman in the whole land. And she is married to the king, but she also asks for me. You know? He's got his chest out so far, he's going to get a black eyes. I mean, he is just celebrating himself. Look at me. I'm so the man. I'm going to invite all my friends over so I can rehearse to them that I'm so the man. And my wife, too. I love the irony. This is a juicy one. Where did we end? I don't know. Verse 13, yet all this is worth nothing to me, he says, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. And it's oozing at this point. And it's a good story at this point. It's all coming together. And then, 
by a good stroke of luck, we come to chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and that'll help you sleep, right? (laughs) Just bring out the chronicles and tell me the history of the city. You read Chronicles and try to stay, never mind. It's hard. And, and they were read before the king and, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thun Teresh. Remember, we learned about them earlier in the book. The ones who planned the assassination. Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who, who, who was in the court? He, he hears somebody coming. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows. Providence, providence, providence. Verse 5, and the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And and the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, "What, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, self? Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden. And on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city. Proclaiming before him. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse as you have said. And do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits in the king's gate. We clap at that and go, Yeah! Never clapped in a sermon before, but man, that's just worth clapping about. That's, that's better than the big screen. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. It just gets better too, by the way. What a chump. (laughs) You know? Well, let's fast forward to the the party that Esther is throwing for the king and for Haman. Uh, Let's go down to chapter 7, verse 2. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It should be granted to you. And, and, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. She's, she's saying what she's asking for, but it's still veiled, at least to the king. I mean, th- that, that would be an obvious one. Of course, that's going to happen. Why would she even be saying that? Well, we know why. But verse 4 says, For, for, for we have been sold, and, and I and my people 
to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who, who is he and, and, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Maybe worthy of applause as well. Well, I hate to do it, but for the sake of time, down in verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman, notice the juicy irony, that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words save the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. That's providence, right? <laughs> then the wrath of the king abated. And depending on your perspective, you say, that's a good providence. Unless you're Haman. This is a bad providence. It gets worse, I mean, just for the sake of, of time. Verse 13 of chapter 9, uh, 9, 13, or it gets better depending on how you look at it. Uh, at the end of verse 13 of chapter 9, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. The Jews won't be annihilated, but Haman and his people will be, and there's celebration. And there's gladness, there's feasting, chapter 9, verse 18, verse 19. It becomes a Jewish holiday. And then at the very end of the book, the very last verse, for Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. So we have the elevation of a Jew now who was supposed to be annihilated. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. I bet he was. <laughs> And he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Good story, huh? It's a great story. It's a story that's not about Esther, even though it's about Esther. It's a story about God. For such a time as this, God has her at the right place, at the right time. I've already mentioned it. I'll mention it again. You know, I, I really don't think it's about Esther. I don't think you should think it's about Esther either. It's about God providing for his own. Just two things before we transition to underscore. Because this is our tendency. Omaha Bible Church, we believe in the sovereignty of God. God is a decreeing God. He's in charge. We believe in providence. We scold people who say luck. We would then have a tendency in the name of providence, in the name of sovereignty, to therefore conclude this means passivity. And this means detachment. And this means coldness. And before you know it, we might have good theology, but we have really cold hearts and we aren't passionate about seeking God himself. 
We're not going to take the time to reread the passage. But let me just remind you that way back in chapter 4, verses 12 to 17, we see that the people are called even by Esther to fast. In other words, to seek the attention of God. There is passion involved. There, there is this uh, seeking the attention of God that is that is earnest and genuine and not in the name of providence of, uh, of all places in the book of Esther of, you know what, we just don't even need to do anything. Emotionally detached, emotionally, emotionally indifferent, cold-hearted because, you know, we know God causes all things to work together for good. You know, like they're quoting Romans 8.28, even though they didn't have it yet. No with full assurance and confidence, yes, about God will take care of His own somehow, some way, we might not even know how, they still nevertheless are, are, are fasting. They still nevertheless are seeking the attention of God. And as a pastor, I want to remind you about providence. But I also want to remind you of what that's not going to look like. And I know how we are because I know my own heart to a certain degree and we want to go one way or the other. We see both in Esther. And just one more thing. And that is to remind you, going back to that question, what if the Jews had been annihilated? That question, what is Esther doing in the canon of Scripture? To remind you that if the Jews had been annihilated, there would be no communion today. There would be no in remembrance of me, Jesus speaking. Because there would be no Messiah. There would be no Jewish baby born in Bethlehem who has come to save his people from their sins. There would be no Matthew 1 genealogy God could not be trusted because God promised back in Genesis 12 let's say to make a great people even eternally so through Abraham oh wait a second let's go back further let's go back to Genesis 3 that small little veiled promise, a gospel promise of hope and redemption. There would be no such thing if it weren't for such a time as this. God has the right young orphan girl who happens to be very, very pretty. The right place at the right time. So through providence, the people of God can be spared and so we can have one born in Bethlehem. It's got to be this way, by the way. I'm thinking of, of passages like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. How God chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. That means, that means before 400 B.C. That means before Genesis 3, before time even begins, God has a plan to redeem. And so he is going to have the right girl at the right place at the right time if it means preserving the Jewish people. Isn't it cool? 
It's better than cool. It's worship-inducing, right? And you say, this is great. This is grand. Thank the Lord for working providentially, not just miraculously, though He does it both ways. Uh, makes me like the book of Esther even more as I think about what it was that she did. She didn't even know what she was doing. But we see the hand of God. So praise Him for that. And also, please know that we're talking about trusting the same God now for your life, for your rejoicing, for your suffering, for your breathing your last breath and stepping into eternity. We're talking about a God who doesn't always work in the miraculous. I would suggest it looks more like the exception rather than the rule when you read the Bible chronologically. But He always works providentially causing all things to work together for our good. Trust Him. Trust Him. Worship Him. Praise Him. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for this extraordinary opportunity that we have to think about these things. What a great day of worshiping for us. What a great day for equipping as we think about these things. We're thankful that You do have the right people at the right place at the right time. In a certain sense, we're thankful you have the wrong people at the right place at the right time. Because you provide for your children extraordinarily so. We're grateful now. We are so, we are so exceedingly grateful now that we can in fact obey the Lord Jesus. And we can in fact take bread and take wine and eat it and drink it. As he said as symbols, symbols of His body, symbols of His blood, as He gave Himself up for us so that we might have our sins forgiven, so that we might have His righteousness credited to us, so that we might know what it means to have a restored relationship with the very One whom we've offended so much, with you, through Christ. And so as we eat and as we drink, may we do so worshipfully, thankfully, that you are the God who provides. In Jesus' name we pray.